0: The briefing is brought to you in association with the Sustainable Cities in Action Forum at Expo City Dubai. The Sustainable Cities in Action Forum at Expo City Dubai is a place for city leaders, developers, architects and designers to come together and innovate for the future of urban spaces. It's an opportunity for the Global South to convene in the Global South. It's a testbed for real-world solutions that will shape the future of people and planet. You can hear from the innovative thinkers and inspirational voices that drove the narrative at this year's edition by listening to Monocle's special episodes of The Briefing, recorded live at Expo City Dubai in March. Find and listen to the shows now at monocle.com or wherever you get your podcasts. The Sustainable Cities in Action Forum 2024. Collaborate. Innovate. Transform.
1: You're listening to the briefing, first broadcast on the 11th of December 2023 on Monocle Radio. It's 20:00 in Hong Kong, 14:00 in Gaza City, midday here in London, and 9 am in Buenos Aires. You're listening to Monocle Radio. The briefing starts now. And welcome to The Briefing, broadcasting to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I'm Georgina Godwin. Coming up on today's programme, we'll look at the humanitarian situation in Gaza. We'll find out more about the historically low turnout in Hong Kong's local election this weekend. Plus...
2: We are going to make sure that we bring numbers back under control that we build a better planned system around essential things like housing.
1: Australia launches a new 10-year plan on migration. We'll hear the details from Canberra. And then Fernando will be here to shuffle through the papers. Fernando, what do you have for us?
0: Hello Georgina. Today we discuss Argentina's Javier Millet inauguration and the enduring appeal of Japanese movies.
1: All that right here on The Briefing with me, Georgina Godwin. On Friday, the United States vetoed a United Nations resolution backed by 13 of 15 council members demanding an immediate ceasefire in Gaza where Palestinian civilians are facing what the UN chief calls a humanitarian nightmare. Well, for an update on the crisis facing civilians in Gaza, I'm joined by Shana Lowe of the Norwegian Refugee Council. Shayna, what you predicted would happen is indeed happening when you spoke to us last. I'd like to just focus in first on health care. Can you tell us about the state of hospitals in Gaza?
3: Currently... Only around a third of Gaza's hospitals are semi-operational. There were 36 operational hospitals prior to the start of hostilities, and I think we're at about 14 right now. Uh, we've gone from 3,500 beds available on October 7th to just about 1,400, and the needs surpassed 5,000 beds. So the the hospital system is is in dire need of support and 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 collapsing. Uh, in, in the wake of, of limited supplies, medicines, and just total overwhelming number of injuries to, to attend to. On top of that, we are also hearing from our colleagues on the ground reports of spreading diseases, uh, both due to unhygienic conditions, uh, uh, lack of clean drinking water, and, and on top of that, people living in such close quarters that um communicable diseases are spreading and so we are increasingly worried as winter approaches and and rains uh and, and the rain season continues that that there will be more disease spread which will further um put pressure on the already collapsing healthcare system in Gaza and how much
1: aid is getting through
3: not enough there's nowhere near enough assistance coming in to Gaza even during the seven day humanitarian pause, nowhere near enough assistance was getting in um, to meet people's needs, basic needs. Um, we're hearing from the UN that about hundred trucks per day have come in over the last um, three or four days, but that's nowhere near what's needed. The only ways that that the and, and not only is it not near what anywhere near what's needed. But it's not reaching people who are in need, particularly in northern Gaza, where there's been really limited to no access. Since the resumption of hostilities about ten days ago, and uh, in, in, so the only way that we will be able to serve the needs of the of the people in Gaza is twofold. First, we need a complete, sustained, permanent ceasefire. That's the only way to to hemorrhage the the destruction, the death, the damage in Gaza, and be able to start repairing. Um, and, and safely access people in need. But on top of that, we also need um, additional crossings to be open. The, the Karam Shalom crossing prior to October 7th serviced had about 500 trucks, commercial trucks, um, mostly going through it. And, and we desperately need that crossing, which is built for the crossing of goods, unlike Rafa crossing, which has been used since October 21st which is Rafah is a pedestrian crossing that's been that's been used now for for goods, but we need Israel to open the additional crossings that they have to allow for the scaling up and influx of goods and the ability to reach all parts of Gaza.
1: So the fact that you can't actually get in there with supplies, what are people actually eating and drinking?
3: You know, it's not. Not nearly enough. The World Food Program reported last week that 90% of, of Palestinians in northern Gaza had gone in the last month at least one day without food, uh, and, and uh, 18% of people there reported that they that they had gone at least 10 days without food or water. People are making do with whatever they can find. We're hearing from our colleagues that that the economy in Gaza has basically collapsed and many stores have simply just shut their doors because they have nothing left to sell. Uh, A a few days ago, I asked my colleague Yusuf what he was eating for if he'd managed to get some food and what he was eating. And he sent me a picture of just a sweet potato. People are making do with whatever they can find, but it's nowhere near enough.
1: Mm. Uh, And tell us more about the staff of humanitarian agencies on the ground, particularly your own, and not just the circumstances in which they're living, but sadly, the circumstances in which some of them are dying.
3: Yes, so... I, I don't think we ever imagined a situation where our own humanitarian aid workers would become reliant on humanitarian aid, but that's just what's happened now, particularly given the level of displacement with 85% of, of Gazans displaced inside of Gaza. Um, many of our own staff are homeless, sleeping on the streets because they simply have nowhere to go, and we are doing all that we can to to help them um we thankfully none of our staff have been killed but we have had many staff members who've lost members of their family and who have been injured in in direct airstrikes on the homes that they were seeking shelter in one colleague amal had fled northern gaza after israel's directive to to leave had fled to rafa in in southern gaza and then was subsequently bombed in in the house that she was seeking refuge in uh, and that that uh, airstrike killed uh, 10 members of her family, including her only child, a seven-year-old boy named Khalid. We had a colleague last week who was injured in an airstrike in Rafa that killed two members of her family. Each day, it seems that our staff are telling us that members of their family, their friends are being killed. Sometimes because of communications issues and the challenges in keeping in touch, they're finding out weeks after the fact that they've lost members of their families. There simply is no safe space in Gaza for anyone to seek refuge at this point. Well, and
1: we know that the bombardment of Khan Yunus continues. Where are displaced civilians now sheltering?
3: People have been fleeing since last week further south towards Rafah and west towards El Mawasi, which is a barren strip of land along the coastline in Gaza, El Mawasi has no facilities to speak of. It literally is an empty strip of land, so there's no water connection. Obviously, there's no electricity since electricity has been cut. And people are basically going and making do with whatever they can in order to, to build a, a, a makeshift shelter. They're imp- using whatever materials they can to improvise those shelters. Last week, we lost contact with our staff in Gaza because the internet at their... Uh, at their at the office that they are working out of was cut after somebody cut the cable to use that to salvage to make uh, a, le- a makeshift tent. That is the level of desperation. People are fleeing with whatever they can, um, and and now as as the rainy season approaches, it's meant to rain. It's predicted to rain tomorrow and Wednesday in Gaza that creates quite a muddy mess where people are, are really exposed to the elements and, and don't have suitable means of shelter. On top of that, we're hearing from our colleagues in the shelter cluster, which is an interagency body meant to coordinate the shelter response, that a number of shelter materials haven't been able to get through because of restrictions that Israel has imposed. And so sealing off kits, which would help to repair uh, damaged structures uh, are not being allowed in because of the tools that are, uh, which are hammers, saws, shovels, that are um, packaged inside of those kits. Right now, we have 250,000 housing units at least in need of in need of repairs, um, with 60% of housing in Gaza damaged or destroyed. So it's really a, a dire situation where where many people are like our staff are sleeping on the streets. Um, and trying to make do with whatever materials they can manage to find.
1: Shayna, thank you very much indeed. That was Shaina Lowe in Jerusalem. Now, here's Christy O'Grady with the day's other news headlines. Thanks, Georgina. US President Joe Biden will host Ukraine's Volodymyr Zelensky on Tuesday at a critical moment for the future of Washington's support for Kyiv. An emergency aid package for Ukraine is stalled in Congress after Republican lawmakers blocked the legislation last week. India's Supreme Court has voted to uphold a government decision to strip Jammu and Kashmir of its special status. The unanimous verdict is a boost for Narendra Modi, who before his election pledged to bring the state under New Delhi's direct control. And the conspiracy theorist Alex Jones has been reinstated on X, the social media site formerly known as Twitter. The move came after a poll organised by the site's owner Elon Musk saw 70% of nearly 2 million participants approve his return. Those are the day's headlines. Back to you, Georgina. Thanks, Christy. A Patriots-only district election in Hong Kong that barred opposition Democrats from the ballot sheet amid a national security squeeze had a record low voter turnout of 27.5% on Sunday, as many voters spurned what was seen as an undemocratic poll. Well, Monocle writer Naomi Shu elegant can tell us more. Naomi, can you recap what's happened since 2019 when the turnout was 71%
4: So since 2019, it's basically night and day in terms of Hong Kong's political situation. Um, Obviously, everyone remembers the the protests that occurred throughout the year of 2019. And then after that, um, Beijing implemented national security law in 2020 aimed at quashing all kinds of political dissent uh, and succeeded. Uh, the year after that, they had a really big overhaul of the whole electoral system because they wanted to implement a so-called patriots-only ballot, essentially meaning that anyone that criticizes the government is not allowed to run. And that's where we are today. And so what are these elections for and how important are they? So on paper, the district council elections are actually pretty small local elections. There's 18 districts in Hong Kong. Um, and the members who are elected deal with you know, local neighbourhood issues like trash collection and community events. So really Um, small scale neighbourhood, environmental or or cultural issues. But I think um, since it is one of the only elections in Hong Kong that can be um, directly elected by citizens, uh, the symbolic value is a lot greater than than it really sounds. I mean, in 2019, it was seen as a really big deal. That's right. So the 2019 elections happened at the height of the protests. And I think the government and the Chinese government and Hong Kong government are both expecting that People would show up to the polls and vote for the pro-government candidates and they were looking forward to it as a way to show okay the silent majority actually doesn't support these protests they are getting out of control. What happened instead was that the pro-democracy candidates won a majority in every single district, the government was totally flabbergasted, it was really a landslide victory for, for pro-democracy and because of that uh, it, it led to these the huge overhaul that ensured that no uh, anti-establishment candidate can ever run again.
1: So, what does the turnout this time being so low tell us about the voter sentiment in Hong Kong?
4: I think it really speaks to how disillusioned and apathetic people are compared to four years ago, when people were really, really engaged in uh, in politics, whether it was through the protests or even just on the ballot box. If they weren't, you know, going to demonstrations, they still believe that. Uh, they had something to say that, uh, you know, as voters, they would be listened to. And and now it's, yeah, it's it's historically low turnout. It's never been below 30%. Um, so I think despite the government's uh, urgings for people to go to the ballot box, people just really don't believe anymore that, that they have a say that it'll make a difference.
1: But voting isn't mandatory. I mean, nothing happened to people who refused to vote.
4: No, no, no. Um, there were some arrests for people who uh, allegedly deliberately were sharing social media posts Urging boycotts, but uh, it's not a mandatory vote. Mm.
1: You were in Hong Kong in the lead up to these elections. How did you find it?
4: Well, one thing I definitely noticed was that there was posters everywhere uh, from the government telling people to go and vote on Sunday. Uh, in past elections, you would always see pretty colorful candidate posters. So, like, you know, the candidate's face, their party, uh, maybe a little short message. But now they're actually everywhere in Hong Kong, you know, huge billboards from the government not from a candidate saying, um, go vote, go vote on Sunday, you know, the date in big letters uh, didn't seem to work, obviously. Mm-hmm.
1: And and just sort of being there and soaking up the atmosphere, was there a feeling of hopelessness? Is there any democratic space in which voters can exercise their democratic right?
4: I mean, the strange thing, if you go, uh, is it's, it's hard to tell just on a street level that uh, how much has changed. I think, there's definitely more propaganda posters that for me, as someone who lived there in 2019, is the biggest clue. If you talk to people, obviously you'll find out a lot more, but it really feels like it did four years ago. Uh, but in terms of political space, it's, it's really night and day, as I said. Uh, there's basically no avenues to, to criticise a government or to have any kind of pro-democracy stance now because the national security concerns are so vast and broad that really anything can be construed as a, a threat to national security. And how is that affecting daily life? It 's a good question, I think I think um, many, many people have been arrested and a lot more have gone abroad. If you look at the the migration statistic, especially young people in Hong Kong or people with young children they 've all emigrated and obviously there 's no um, polling for that, but I think a lot of the reason is it 's political, whether it 's because they feared that they were going to be arrested, they didn 't see a future of themselves or they didn 't want their children to grow up in this really drastically changed um, political environment
1: Naomi Shu elegant, thank you very much indeed. You're listening to The Briefing on Monocle Radio. You're back with The Briefing on Monocle Radio. Australia's government says the temporary migration system is broken and changes to student and skilled worker visas are needed to address exploitation as it lays out plans for a new 10-year temporary migration strategy. Australia's Minister for Home Affairs, Claire O'Neill, announced the plan at a press conference earlier.
2: When we arrived in government, we found a migration system in tatters. Don't take it from me, take it from Dr Martin Parkinson, who wrote a comprehensive review for our government, which told us that this is a system that has been deliberately neglected over a decade. Uh, it was a system that wasn't working for workers, that wasn't working for business, and that was not oriented towards meeting our national interest. Our government has picked up this really ambitious reform project and what we'll be launching to you today is a plan that will see us address those major challenges in the system.
1: Well, that was Clare O'Neill, Australia's Minister for Home Affairs, speaking to the press earlier. Karen Middleton is the Saturday Paper's Chief Political Correspondent and she joins me now from Canberra. Karen, what are the current migration figures in Australia and have we seen much movement?
2: Well, the the key here, I guess, Georgina, is the net overseas migration and the numbers that, that are involved there have blown out massively. Now, this is a, a bit, we're in a legacy period from the COVID pandemic where our borders were closed for really almost, well, a couple of years and we didn't have migration and so we uh, have had a sort of surge of people coming into the country since then and we've needed people for the labour market. So we our net overseas migration has been at 510,000 and with these changes, the government wants to reduce that within a couple of years to 250,000. So that means... We will still be growing the net, uh, the temporary migration population by 250,000, but it will be about half as fast or half as large a growth as it would otherwise be. And the problem the government says we have is the emphasis is too much on temporary migration uh, and not on permanent migration and we're not targeting people with the skills Australia needs and we've got a series of visas that allow people to come in for example as students and then work and that people are rotting that system enrolling in courses they're not really interested in very low grade courses that don't really match their skills and then really just getting work permits and exploiting the opportunity to work in Australia and it's not suiting Australia and it's leaving those people vulnerable to to really serious exploitation.
1: So can we just explore what those tiers of visas are? So for instance, what happens to middle-tier skilled worker visas?
2: Well this is they're talking about over, overhauling the whole visa system so we would have the high skilled visa people who earn uh, people who are coming into professions that would earn above above 135,000 then there's a mid tier and then there's a low tier that are people who could earn uh, uh, up to 70,000 they're trying to uh, formalise those structures because the people at the bottom end, they say, have been coming in on these other visas and visa skipping, jumping from one to another. They've, they've taken advantage of some of the restrictions that were taken off during the pandemic to allow people to stay in Australia because there were people who couldn't uh, get out of Australia because the borders were closed but had visas that were expiring. So they created this new pandemic event visa that was easy to get onto and people have jumped onto that visa and ended up um, being able to work and roll that visa over. But they've been earning very, very low amounts of money. So they're trying to raise that minimum level and make sure that the people at the very bottom end are not being exploited. The people, um, we haven't had as much information about what happens to the people in the middle, but they're really targeting those two top skilled sectors where they say they want people to come in here with a pathway to citizenship that can make a contribution to Australia's skill set and not just end up sort of languishing here as what they call permanent impermanent temporariness. Mm. And what about students? Well, students are a large cohort. We've got 650,000 overseas students here at the moment, and they are some of the ones that the government is concerned are not getting the best value from their student visas and not giving the best value to Australia. So they're really trying to reduce the number of overseas students. Now, they have been the source of income for Australian universities for some time. Successive governments have really cut back on funding for universities, and they've been forced... Almost, to source overseas students to keep their uh, income up, the university's income. So they're very concerned that there might be some future move to put a cap on the number of overseas students. The government says that's not the case, but they do want to sort of sort the system out so that students are coming here for legitimate courses for fixed periods of time. They, they can't then roll onto a graduate visa that allows them to sort of stay in the country for another nine years working and not working necessarily in the fields that they studied. So it's a, it's a, a move to regularise, I guess, the whole system and make sure that student, students are coming here for legitimate study in courses that will uh, give them work skills. And then if they're going to stay in Australia, they stay here for six periods of time and then they go home. And uh, family visas and other
1: permanent visa pathways, those just stay exactly the same?
2: They're, they're going to collapse 20 visas um, down into a, a smaller number. They haven't finished the work on that yet. And when we ask what those visa categories will be, the government has not given us that information yet. But they are also separately working on family visa categories. And that has been a problem area for a long time because there's such a massive backlog. The waiting times for family visas to Australia are can be up to years. So they're trying to reduce the waiting times and they've said that they have done that even In a short term, and then try and simplify the system so it's not as complicated either to manage um, at the bureaucratic end or to apply for when you're a person wanting to sponsor family members to come to Australia. So really, it's a sort of a, a root and branch overhaul of the entire migration system. And they say, the government says, it hasn't been functioning in the way that Australia needs it to, to be um, contribute to the future prosperity and economy of the country and and uh, quality of life for Australians. Mm. So it's, it's a big change.
1: Uh, and was there any mention of migrants and uh, the offshoring of them in places like Pat- in New Guinea.
2: Well, they haven't talked about that in this context, and it's a point of some sensitivity because the uh, current government has maintained officially the offshore processing regime that previous governments have had. We haven't had as much of an issue with asylum seekers seeking to come to Australia by boat, but uh, as we have in some recent, you know, in in the recent past. But the government is also saying that they're seeking to try and stop people uh, using the humanitarian visa. A process to also stay in Australia because as soon as you your visa is expiring, if you're here on a different visa, you, you can apply for a humanitarian visa and then end up being allowed to stay a little bit longer. So there are a range of. Um issues within the humanitarian visa and protection visa processes that sort of connect to this overall strategy that they're trying to clean up as well. But, but certainly the asylum seeker thing is, is still a point of some political sensitivity in Australia.
1: And, and Karen, finally, how are ordinary Australians and indeed the opposition, the political opposition,
2: taking this, this new visa programme? the opposition is very critical of the government they've been critical of the government on a range of issues to do with migration recently and they are uh, criticizing this and saying that it isn't going to work i think the general population is concerned about an influx of migrants we've We've occasionally had a tendency to be concerned about migrants taking Australian jobs, quote unquote, in this country. Uh, I think the government's made the point that that's really not the case here, but there are always sensitivities around uh, the politics of immigration in Australia, whether it's the humanitarian stream or large numbers of other people coming in and concerns. There have been concerns in the past in the union movement, too, about driving wages down and, and uh, guest worker programs and the like, or the effective, of effectiveness of the programs that can look like guest worker programs if they're not um, uh, ensuring people are paid properly. So I think the government's mindful of making sure that the Uh, public is taken along with them, that they explain what they're trying to do and that they talk about this as being to Australia's benefit and uh, putting more structure around the immigration system rather than just having an ad hoc system where all manner of people can come in on temporary visas, roll them over and stay as long as they like. And we're not ending up with an overall benefit to the economy.
1: Karen Middleton in Canberra. Thank you very much indeed. You're listening to The Briefing on Monocle Radio. (laughs) Thank you now, let's have a look at the papers. Our producer and senior correspondent, Fernando Augusto Pacheco, is with me in the studio. Fernando, there was a poem written in 1920 called First Fig, and it goes like this. My candle burns at both ends, it will not last the night, but ah, my foes and oh, my friends, it gives a lovely light. And that's by the poet Edna St. Vincent Millay. Now, she's spelt M-I-A-A-Y, but another person who is causing a great blaze of light, but in fact, cutting his candle in half with his austerity programme, is another Millet. That's M-I-L-L-E-I?
0: Exactly. M-I-L-E-I. And he is, Millet. of course,
1: the new leader of Argentina, who has just been inaugurated, and he's been giving us some details of what he plans to do.
0: Absolutely. So, of course, that's the main story in Latin America and in Argentina. I was reading La Nación, the front pages, a historical change. Uh, Millet starts a new era in Argentina, and that's a massive change for Argentina. The Peronismo movement, uh, Georgina, they have dominated Argentinian politics post-dictatorship, uh, so he does represent a rupture uh, from that. He's quite a radical, uh, of course. He wants to implement, indeed, uh, austerity measures. And he said that he will cut the number of ministries in Argentina to nine. He did that. But it's interesting that one of the ministers is his sister, Karina Millet. She'll be the secretary general. So it's quite interesting. I mean, he does have this kind of speech of, like, I want to cut costs, you know, and then at the same time, he hires his sister. So it's, it's quite a little bit of nepotism uh, going on, but it's a big deal. Uh, and a lot of kind of uh, st- leaders around the world were in Argentina as well. Perhaps the most famous of the now that everybody was paying attention was Volodymyr Zelensky uh, who paid a visit to Millet. So you can see... he's think...
1: also a former television personality. They both are, which is interesting. <laughs>
0: exactly. I mean, it seems that the whole world is only electing TV personalities, yeah. right? But I think it's interesting that Zelensky paid this visit because because it's not that Brazil is anti Ukraine in any way whatsoever. But many Latin American leaders are kind of conflicted. Of course, they criticise Russia, but perhaps the words are not strong enough. I think Millay is more of a kind of very much pro-Ukraine. Mm. Uh, and I think Zelensky sensed that. And that's why uh, he went. Lula wasn't there. I mean, he did send the, our uh, foreign uh, you know, relations minister there. So it's not a completely rupture between Brazil and Argentina. But, you know, it's a little bit of a snub uh, to Millet as well.
1: Just before we move on from this, of course, he's characterised as being extremely colourful uh, and taking um, political advice from his dead dog. Now It's true. <laughs> you've met my dog and I know that if she were to give political advice it would soon become government policy to have more biscuits. I wonder what it is that his dogs are telling <laughs> yeah, me. Yeah
0: and, and can I be honest that was actually one of the nice things about Millet that he takes advice from his dogs but I have a feeling his dogs are a little bit radical Georgina. <laughs> I mean maybe maybe not Millet's dogs. I think Bella your lovely dog <laughs> would give better political advice in I my opinion. I think you
1: might be right. Uh, let's talk <laughs> Talk about a good news story, and this is in Montpellier in France, which is going to be offering public uh, transport completely for free.
0: Very interesting story from La Tribune Dimanche, uh, which is a lovely new newspaper, I have to say, from Sundays in France. Indeed, from the 21st of December, Montpellier who have free public transport for everyone. Uh, that's remarkable. It's not the first one to do it. There are 43 French municipalities who do, who do that already for everyone. Uh, but I think montpellier will be the largest of them all. Uh, but La Tribune dimanche they did a big story on it. Of course, there are people who are in favour. Uh, of course, more people using public transport, using less cars, good for the environment. But then there's also a lot of people against it, uh, including Valérie uh, Pécresse from, from, uh, from Paris, Uh, you know, uh, the MP, she said, I mean, you can't do that in Paris because a lot of the money they get for their kind of transport are still people buying the tickets as well. So, they, there's a lot of conflict there. But I think the citizens of Montpellier will be quite happy. I have to double-check if tourists have the same rights. I have a feeling they do. Because um, how
1: would you discriminate? You wouldn't be able to
0: tell. Exactly. You? Are you a tourist or not? No, <laughs> you're, you're, you're absolutely right. Uh, maybe I, I never been to Montpellier. Maybe I should pay a visit.
1: Oh, I did go there. I, once, I remember having a particularly good roast chicken
0: for some reason. I Uh, had a great roast chicken yesterday in Paris, (laughs) by the way, at La Fontaine de Mars. Oh, nice. I mean, we all like a roast chicken.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Let's just
1: have a quick look at Japan having a box office moment in the United States.
0: Yeah, let's look at Deadline, which is a a movie kind of uh, industry website. I mean, the Japanese movies are doing so well in the US. The number one film uh, this weekend in the US was The Boy and the Heron, which is the latest animation from Studio Ghiblis. I mean, Strong numbers. I mean, more than any of the kind of the current blockbusters, any other of the potential Oscar contenders as well. But of course, we must talk about Godzilla here. Uh, the film, I think, it's been out for two or three weeks. It's been doing so well. At this stage, it's already the the l- largest grossing Japanese live action movie ever in the United States. Just in a few weeks. Uh, so this is remarkable. And you know what, Georgina, one of the reasons is that those two are good films. I haven't seen it, but the critics loved it. I think the Rotten Tomatoes is 95%, 96%. So, I mean, if you make good films, I think people go and watch it. And great for soft power uh, for Japan as well to export uh, their movies everywhere, including the US.
1: Absolutely. So there it is, your viewing tip for this week. Go and see Godzilla. Fernando, thank you very much indeed. And that's all for this edition of The Briefing, which was produced by Lillian Fawcett and Christy O'Grady, our studio manager was Mariella Bevan. And the briefing is back tomorrow at the same time. I'm Georgina Godwin. Goodbye and thanks for listening.